بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيك ما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكملان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد كلما ذكره الذاكرون وكلما غفل عن ذكرك وذكره الغافلون وسلم تسليما كثيرا وبعد الحمد لله This is our December session of Ask the Imam and tonight we're going to be taking just three questions. The first question, the questioner says, Assalamu alaikum, can you please explain what the valid position or positions of Ahlu Sunnah is slash are with regards to mortgages? Are they permitted in the West since it is practically impossible to buy a home without one? What about quote-unquote halal mortgages? Are they really riba-free? Jazakallahu khairan. Wa alaykum wassalam wa iyyakum. As for my answer, those of you who have been coming to this for a while know that sometimes I'll get a question and I'll go into a lot of detail instead of giving a simple answer. Well, this is not one of those. I'm actually going to give a relatively quick and simple answer to this question. And that's for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, I am fundamentally opposed to riba in all forms. That's me. And number two, I have a very strong distrust of many of the organizations that claim to be halal Islamic alternatives. So I'm going to put that out there right now so that if my answer seems to you that it's uh, leave something to be desired, you go ask other ulama. But this is the answer I would give, and it's a very brief one. So based on that, what I will say is that firstly, it is not halal for a person to take a riba-based mortgage to buy a home. This is what I have received from all of my mashayikh, all of my teachers. Not a single one of them took an alternative viewpoint on this matter. And I'm aware that there are some alternative viewpoints on the matter. I know that there are different ulama from dif different masadik and masharib who have different views about the ins and outs of navigating buying a home in the West and dealing with this issue. I'm aware of that. But none of my teachers have transmitted and taught anything to me on this matter except that riba is fundamentally haram and it applies to how we buy a home or don't buy a home. So yes, there are other views out there. But those views do not inspire my confidence, nor are they the views that I received from my teachers. So I'm not going to give an alternative view to anyone when those views don't inspire my confidence. And they're not something I received from any teachers in a detailed and methodical manner. So that's the first point. Of course, there are some organizations out there that claim to be quote-unquote Sharia compliant. And I'm aware that some of them claim that and they are not. And I know a few examples where it's very clearly not the case that they're Sharia compliant. Because when you go into the details, you find that they call it a partnership when it's not a partnership. Where you stand to lose everything and they lose nothing. That's not a partnership. A true musharaka partnership is one where both parties stand to lose or gain. So some of them claim different things and some of them are very dubious. There are others who claim to be legitimate and they are more legitimate than others perhaps. But I haven't gone into detail looking into every single organization or company that deals with these matters to see how compliant they are and what standards they have. How are they doing this? So what I want to offer you is a way to find that out for yourself. So when I say that I have a, a natural distrust of a lot of these companies and that some of them are not legitimate at all, 
Does that mean that there are absolutely no Sharia compliant companies that facilitate home purchases? I'm not making that claim. That claim requires a certain degree of istiqra, of, of looking into all of them to see, and I haven't done that. So I can't make that claim, and I won't make a comment on every single company. So what should you do? Based on my limited understanding, what you should do is seek out a company on your own that it has a Sharia board. And what I mean by board is that it is chaired by not just one or two scholars, but it's chaired by three or four or five. And these scholars are recognized, they are known. And they're not just known as scholars, but they're also known for their precision. They're known for their exactitude. They don't just rubber stamp things, right? So let's say you have a company that has a board uh, with a handful of recognized scholars in Sharia who are experts in financial matters. And they have looked into the methods used by the company and they sign off on it. If those scholars are known to you and they inspire your confidence and you want to go forward with them, then you've done your duty as a Muslim, as far as I'm concerned. As far as I'm concerned, for the average Muslim, if they investigate the matter and they ins those scholars inspire confidence in them for their authority and expertise and they sign off on it and the person goes with that, I have nothing to say. They've done their duty. If the actual contract and all the details are problematic, then that person wouldn't know anyway, right? They've done their duty, which is فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ So that's really it. Now, if you don't find someone who fits that criteria, you don't find a company, they don't have a board of scholars, or those scholars don't inspire your confidence, and it seems like maybe they're just rubber stamping something, if you don't find a company that has this criteria, then understand that contrary to what some people have said, owning a home does not count as a darura in the Sharia. Darura as in a necessity, a legally recognized necessity. Darura is not the same thing as a haja. And there are other alternatives to involving oneself with riba. So this is dunya, right? The durura that we have is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and that is what we should be focusing on. Another alternative is something that needs to be developed within our communities. And that is by having uh, lots of families pool their money together to enable members of the community to take interest-free loans from within the community. This can be done within uh, family groups and friend networks with people they know and trust. And when those people pay off those loans, they can also contribute to this pool for the next family and then the next family. There are some ethnicities in different parts of the U.S. that actually do this as within their own ethnic group. I know this happens among some of the Somalis in different parts of the U.S. They actually do this because it's still a very tribal people. So the, the, the Ibn Khaldunian and Asabiya, the tribal solidarity is still very strong with them. So they, they do that sometimes. And ultimately, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will provide for you and your children. You are responsible for exercising taqwa, doing your best, applying your due diligence to seek the ruling of Allah. And if you find a company that inspires confidence, and it has this criteria, go forward, bismillah. If you don't find anything that fits this criteria, then understand that you await your house in Jannah, and maybe you're renting for a while until Allah opens that door for purchasing a home in a more legitimate way. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Okay, the next question is about food. The questioner says, Assalamu alaikum. Please answer the following questions related to the non-halal foods given to non-Muslims. 
So let's count these questions. Is it permissible to buy food containing gelatin and non-halal meat and give it to non-Muslims as a donation or gift slash party? What is the ruling on accepting such non-halal foods from others? If unknowingly accepted, can we give that to non-Muslims instead of trashing them? How many questions are there? You count of four. Yeah, I, I think there's three. Uh, so there's commas here, so maybe there's two questions in one sentence. I see three questions. So I'll go, I'll read it again. Is it permissible to buy food that contains gelatin and non-halal meat and give it to non-Muslims as a donation or a gift slash party? I, I count that as one. You, you count two? Okay. I can see I see why you would do that because one is buying right yeah number two what is the ruling on accepting such non-halal foods from others you didn't buy it but someone gave it to you number three if unknowingly accepted can we give that to non-muslims instead of trashing them so there's three questions so the short answers to these three are number one no number two not allowed number three yes no maybe it depends. So let's look at those three. All right. Before we look into these three individually, we want to look at the roots of this question and what it goes back to. This question, of course, it's a legal question about halal and haram. But this question actually goes back to a very ancient discussion among the theologians and the usuliyun mostly among the usuliyun, the scholars of usulul fiqh, or the theoretical basis for Islamic jurisprudence, legal theory. How Islamic law works, how do we derive detailed rulings of sharia from the various forms of evidence in our tradition, from Qur'an and sunnah and ijma'ah and qiyas and other forms. So this is actually an usuli question. The usuli question is as follows. Are non-believers addressed with the detailed matters of Islamic law? That was a quick answer. Okay. So to answer this question, let's ask another question. Are non-believers addressed with the usul of Islam? What are the usul? Qulu la ilaha illallah, Muhammadun Rasulullah. Usul meaning the beliefs. Of course, every single human being is commanded by Allah Ta'ala to have iman. But are non-believers who have yet to become Muslim, are they addressed with the specific commands of Allah Ta'ala and the prohibitions of Allah Ta'ala to not do them. This is a question. And the majority of the ulama said, yes, they are. So you are with the majority. The minority said, no the disbelievers are not addressed with the details of Sharia law. So, and they go back and forth about this question and they, all, they each have their evidence for it. So the majority say, yes, they are addressed with the details of Sharia, but even if they did them, they would not be accepted. So praying five times a day would be an obligation on everyone, but it would not be accepted from them because they're lacking the fundamental condition for prayer to be valid. What's that condition? Islam. And that's why when you go to the books of law, when they list out the shurut of salat, the conditions of prayer, they'll list things like Islam, number one, followed by maturity, bulugh, followed by aql, meaning they're, they're sane. So Islam is listed there, and you study these books of fiqh, 
you know, maybe you wonder, well, why would they list Islam as a condition? Isn't that obvious? Well, if a person is not a Muslim and they prayed Salat, the Salat would not be accepted because they're lacking a fundamental condition. And that is Islam. So the majority say yes. They are addressed with the details of Sharia. And this is indicated in the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Muddathir where Allah ta'ala mentions the discourse within hell. Allah ta'ala mentions that they will be asked, the people of Jahannam, مَا سَلَكَكُمْ فِي سَقَرٍ what, what drove you to the flames of hell? And the people of hell will respond, قَالُوا لَمْ نَكُوا مِنَ الْمُصَلِّينَ وَلَمْ نَكُوا نُطْعِمُ الْمِسْكِينَ وَكُنَّا نَخُوضُ مَعَ الْخَائِضِينَ وَكُنَّا نُكَذِّبُ بِيَوْمِ الدِّينَ حَتَّى أَتَانَا الْيَقِينَ The people of hell will say, We were not among those who prayed, nor were we among those who fed the poor. And we used to dispute with the disputants. So the ulama say that they're in hell, and they're saying what landed them in hell was the fact that they were not offering salat and they were not paying zakat, among other things, lacking iman. So if they were not addressed by these details of sharia, why would they say that? That's the proof of the majority. Others, the, I mean, the other side would say, well, no, because they lack iman. And if they are addressed with the details of sharia, why is it that a person who becomes a Muslim doesn't have to make up all these prayers. Think about it. You know, a person, they're non-Muslim, they hit the age of puberty, but they become Muslim at 30 years of age. No one says that they have to make up 30 years of prayer. Even, so they're saying, well, if you say that the non-Muslims are addressed by the details of Sharia, well, why aren't they told to make up those prayers? And the majority say, the answer for this is very easy. The Prophet ﷺ said that Islam wipes out the sins that were before it. So there's no qada, right? So that's the answer given by the majority. So what that means, now going to the answer now, what that means for us is because this usuli issue has an impact on our interactions with non-Muslims, if they are addressed with the details of sharia, that means that what is haram for us is also haram for them because they are also mukhatabuna bifuru' sharia. They're addressed with those commands and prohibitions like us. Right? If you say that they're not, well, that would change the answer fundamentally. So the answer I'm giving you is the answer of the majority, uh, and that is the position of uh, Imam Madik, Imam Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad. Of course, the Hanafi position is that. The kuffar are not mukhatabun, right? They're not. But we give the majority position here for a variety of reasons. So you're responsible for dealing with non-Muslims according to our sharia with some caveats and exceptions that would apply in very limited circumstances or caveats and exceptions that would apply to certain classes of non-believers such as Ahlu Dhimma who have certain allowances contractually. Otherwise, we deal with everyone according to the standards of Sharia. So going to the answer about the food issue, generally speaking, we want to look at a principle, a qaida fiqhiya, which is a legal maxim that we use to answer or have a ready-made answer to organize various issues. What is the legal maxim? It is that that which is haram for you to acquire yourself, it is haram for you to give to someone else. So if it is haram for you to acquire something, it is haram for you to give it to someone else. Right? So that principle applies to a lot of different cases that we may see. So applying it to this case, we would say, you don't go out of your way to purchase that kind of food. However, if you accidentally purchased some haram food, the mashayikh, the ulama say that you can indirectly leave it somewhere where a non-Muslim could take it without handing it to them directly. 
that's between them and Allah. You're not giving it. You're just putting it out somewhere. And this is probably the best approach if you don't want to throw it away. Uh, but you're not going to give it directly to people or purchase it for them and things like that. Wallahu ta'ala a'lam. Allah knows best. All right. Now the third question is the longest question, or the, it's a short question, but it's a longer answer. And I really liked this question, and I wanted to address it. So the questioner says, and I'll paraphrase the question a little bit, because uh, he says, Assalamu alaikum. How should we answer when someone asks, number one, if Durud Ibrahim, which is As-Salat al-Ibrahimiyyah, that we say in the Salat, if the As-Salat al-Ibrahimiyyah is the best Salawat from the Hadith, what is the need or how is it permissible to recite other Salawat? You understand the question? If we have a Salat al-Ibrahimiyyah, which we receive directly from Rasulullah wasallam, what is the need to recite other Salawat? And how would it be permissible to recite other Salawat? That's the first question. And the second question is, how can you believe that these kinds of Salawat are given to people or they are inspired by these Salawat if there is no more Nubuwa, no more prophethood, hence no more wahi, no more revelation. So there's a couple of questions here. So there's layers, and I'm not going to cover every dimension of these questions, but I want to give a proper answer. So when we look in our history, we see from the earliest days until today, a very rich and elaborate tradition of what we call munajat or intimate prayers or salawat that are compiled, that are written and transmitted by some of Islam's greatest scholarly authorities and greatest saintly authorities. And these salawat and munajat and da'awat are very valuable contributions to Islam's spiritual heritage. When you look at these salawat and these munajat, these da'awat, you see that they are also like mutun. They're also like teaching text, like didactic texts that are teaching you the etiquette of making du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the proper ways of expressing need and poverty and the etiquette of asking. There's so many valuable things that we derive from those salawat and munajat that have been written and compiled over the centuries. So we want to boil these two questions that the brother asks into the following. Number one, what is the ruling on non-sunnah formulas of remembrance? So non-sunnah dhikr, non-sunnah du'as, non-sunnah salawat. I mean, these things that are not coming directly from a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That's number one. What's the hukum? Number two, after answering the question about the ruling, we want to look at how those kinds of salawat were received and transmitted and why. So let's go to the first question. What is the hukum on reciting non-sunnah formulas of dhikr? We start here because as Muslims we know that our commitment first and foremost is to the sharia, the revealed law that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave to his beloved sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. That the sharia is above every single Muslim. So the mukallaf, the person who is legally responsible, has to know the hukum shar'i, the legal ruling on anything they say or do. So we start here. What is the hukum? The short and easy answer is that it is permissible. But let's look at how this developed and the evidence for this. 
We go to the hadith in Sahih Bukhari and Muslim, which in this hadith it is related from Rifa'a ibn Rafi' radiyallahu anhu. He says, one time we were praying behind the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And he raised his head from Rukur and said, Sami'allahu liman hamida. Now, before I continue, what do you say after you rise from Rukur? Rabbana lakal hamd. So, Rifa'a ibn Rafi' says that when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam raised his blessed head from Rukur, he said, Sami'allahu liman hamida. And a man behind him said, Rabbana lakal hamdu. We say that. Hamdan kathiran tayyiban mubarakan fi. He added these words. Allah hears who praises him and then he says, Our Lord, yours is the praise. Abundantly, wholesomely, and blessedly therein. So he added his own dhikr there, didn't he? After the salat, when the Prophet ﷺ rose to leave, he asked, who said that? And when the man replied that it was him, the Prophet ﷺ said, I saw 30 odd angels, each striving to be the one to write it down, its value and its reward. So this is in Bukhari and Muslim. We go to the commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari, Fath al-Bari of al-Hafidh ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, rahimahullah ta'ala, Amir al-Mu'mineen fil hadith. He says in his commentary, this hadith indicates the permissibility of initiating new expressions of dhikr in the prayer other than the ones related through the hadith text, as long as they do not contradict those conveyed by the hadith. So these words added by this uh, anonymous Sahabi, they were an enhancement and an addendum to the known dhikr that he also used. So it was absolutely permissible. Now there's some people who would say, because people, they, they don't have a proper Islamic education, they don't know Arabic properly, or they haven't studied usul, they may have a very shallow approach to these things. And they say, you know, if you didn't put this as a hadith, if you said a random person added something, they would say, this is an innovation, this is a bid'ah, this person's adding things to the deen. Do they think they are bringing something better than what the Prophet gave? Why would they add something if the deen is perfect? Right? Okay, apply that to the Sahabi. Because he added that before he got the words of approval from the Prophet ﷺ. What was the ruling on what he did before he heard that approval? Was he in bid'ah or was he doing something permissible? Well, we see the prophetic approval indicates that it is permissible. If he did something that was wrong, the Prophet ﷺ would have corrected him. But he didn't correct him. So, we have other hadith like this too. We have the hadith of Abdullah ibn Burayda mentioned in the Sunan of Abu Dawood as well as the Sunan of Imam al-Tirmidhi. He records that he, Abdullah ibn Burayda, heard a man saying, O oh Allah, I ask you because you are Allah alladhi la ilaha illahu besides whom there is no God besides you, the one the eternally besought Al-Ahadu Samad Al-Ladhi Lam Yadid Walam Yurad Walam Yakun Lahu Kufuan Ahad. You see, he's taking the meanings of Surah Al-Ikhlas and putting it into a dua, a dhikr. The Prophet said to this man, You have asked Allah most exalted with his ism a'zam, his supreme name, which when he is invoked with it, he answers. And when asked by it, he gives. So here's another Sahabi who has made his own dhikr and he receives the prophetic approval. We have another hadith. This is also in the Sunan of Imam Tirmidhi from Sayyiduna Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiallahu anhu. 
He said that the Prophet ﷺ heard a man say, Ya dhal jalali wal ikram. And the Prophet ﷺ said, You have been answered, so ask and you will be given. So there's meaning there's no there's no indication that the Prophet ﷺ was teaching people to just go around saying, Ya dhal jalali wal ikram. Of course, the names of Allah in the Quran. But using it in this form, we see the prophetic approval for something that this man did of his own accord. Now, there's something very, very interesting we see. We hear some of these hadith where individual companions are invoking with their own du'as that they did not receive from the Prophet And some of those du'as that they made were actually incorporated into the hadith text in the chapters on al-adhkar al-nabawiyya the prophetic supplications al-imam al-nawi in his al-adhkar his book of prophetic supplications he mentions one of these that actually comes from the muwattah of imam malik ibn anas imam dar al-hijra rahimahullah ta'ala in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, Imam Malik relates عن Malik أنه بلغه عن أبي الدرداء رضي الله عنه أنه كان يقوم من جوف الليل فيقول نامت العيون وغارت النجوم وأنت الحي القيوم Imam Malik records in his Muwatta that Abu الدرداء would get up in the night when praying tahajjud when everyone's asleep and he would say the following dua, the eyes have slept and the stars have set and there remains naught but you, ya hayyu ya qayyum, O living, O self-subsisting. So this is a dua from Abu Darda radiallahu anhu and Imam Malik transmits it in his muwatta in the chapter on prophetic duas. Meaning, because these are in conformity with the guidance of the Prophet ﷺ, because their meanings are consistent with what he taught. But this is the dua of Abu Darda, not the Prophet. ﷺ. So those are a few examples, and there's several others. These are the most prominent ones that show you the Sahaba themselves doing their own du'as without any disapproval whatsoever. But we can even go back to the Quran and find proof for this. And that proof is found in Suratul Ahzab. And this is to answer the question specifically with regards to salawat. In Surah Al-Ahzab, in the very well-known verse, Allah Ta'ala addresses the believers, إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَمَلَائِكَتَهُ يُصَلُّونَ عَلَى النَّبِي يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا صَلُّوا عَلَيْهِ وَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا اللهم صلي على سيدنا محمد وآله Allah says, Indeed Allah and His angels send salat upon the Prophet. O you who believe, صَلُّوا عَلَيْهِ وَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا Sin salat upon him and abundant salutations or greetings of peace. This command, this is a divine command, and this command is general. It's am. And there's nothing to say that it is khas or mukhassas that is specified by a specific form of durood or salat. Is general. It's a general command, and there's nothing to say that it only refers to a specific formula. That means the general text will remain general until it's qualified. Nothing qualifies it, which means you can use the Salat Ibrahimiyyah or other salawat, other wordings that people developed or were inspired to write out, or that they saw in a dream. You can use any of these types of salawat as long as their meanings are clear. So, if someone is to argue and be obstinate and say, no, you can only use a salat Ibrahimiyya, if they're going to argue that you can only use the, the specific formulas that are transmitted by the Prophet wasallam then there's a lot of really negative implications to that argument. Number one, it implies that anyone and everyone 
whoever wrote their own salat or came up with their own salat or dua is guilty of sin including sahaba including ahlul bayt including the great ulama of this ummah in the beginning of this session asked the imam in the opening i actually read part of a salat and this salat is actually taken from the famous work of al-imam shafii rahimahullah known as ar-risala it's the first book in islamic history written uh, organizing the theory behind usulul fiqh and in the beginning of his risala imam shafii wa huwa man huwa the great imams of our ummah in the beginning of his risala in the opening part he says in a long dua i'll read you the first part he says fa sallallahu ala nabiyyina kullama dhakarahu adh-dhakirun wa ghafala an dhikrihi al-ghafilun wa salla alayhi fi al-awwalin wa al-akhirin afdala wa akthara wa azka ma salla ala ahadin min khalqihi wa zakkana wa iyyakum bis-salati alayhi أفضل ما زكى أحدا من أمته بصلاته عليه والسلام عليه ورحمة ورحمة الله وبركاته وجزاه الله عنا أفضل ما جزا مرسلا عن من من أخرجت للناس إلى آخر الدعاء. Long salat he gives upon the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم. He didn't get that from a hadith. That's from his own words. Allah inspired him to write that in the Risala. And in fact, we have a narration from the, the great hadith scholar Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani, the author of Hilyatul Awliya and Dala'il al-Nubuwa and other works, a great hadith scholar. He mentions that he had a dream. Of course, dreams are not hujja in sharia, but yustatnas biha. They, they offer some indications of people's status. Uh, Imam al-Shafi'i was seen Imam Abu Nu'aym al-Asfahani relates this dream. He said he saw the Prophet ﷺ in a dream. And he asked him about Imam al-Shafi'i. He says, what is the status of Imam al-Shafi'i? And in the dream, the Prophet ﷺ told him that he enters Jannah without any reckoning because of his beautiful salawat upon me. And he mentions this phrase in the beginning of the Risala. So to say that you can only use the ones that are di- taken directly from the hadith implies that Imam Shafi'i was sinful, disobedient, in opposition to Rasulullah guilty of blameworthy innovation and all of these horrible charges. That's an ugly implication. And that's false. Because it wasn't just Imam Shafi'i, it was those before him and those after him until today. And the Prophet says, My ummah will not unite upon misguidance. So this is a false argument. Another implication of saying that these things are wrong is that there's no reward for any formula of dhikr except the ones that come from direct transmission in the hadith. Right? In our history, among Islamic ulama, Islamic scholars, the only difference of opinion on this matter was about the blessings and rewards and virtues of certain wordings of salawat. So for example, in the hadith, the Prophet sallallahu says, مَنْ صَلَّ عَلَيَّ صَلَاةً وَاحِدًا صَلَّ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ بِهَا عَشْرًا Whoever sins one salat upon me, Allah will send upon him, because of it, ten salawat. The only conversation, the only conversation you have among the ulama about these kinds of things is if the, is the reward limited to the one who invokes with the transmitted salat or any wording of salat. And the overwhelming majority of the ulama say it is any wording of salat. And only one scholar really went outside of that and differed with the majority. 
And that was Al-Qadi Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi al-Ma'afiri rahimahullah ta'ala. He said, if you want the reward for the salat mentioned in these hadith reports, it needs to be a salat Ibrahimiyyah. That's it. No one else agreed with him. Others said, no, it's any formula because, again, the, the verse in Surah Ahzab is Am, it's general. The hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, we just recited here, مَنْ صَلَّ عَلَيَّ صَلَاةً وَاحِدًا يعني صَلَاةً وَاحِدًا Here it's, it's indefinite, nakira. So it doesn't refer to a specific formula, it's any formula. That's the position of the majority of the ulama. So الْأَمْرُ فِيهِ is There's latitude in this issue. The limiting opinion is only that of Qadi Abu Bakr ibn Arabi, which was not accepted by the other imams. And he never said that you can't recite or write other formulas. He's talking about the reward because the reward is mentioned and he's, his assertion is that that's connected to the specific wording. But even he's not saying you can't use other wordings. The question is reward and whatnot. So that answers, inshallah, the first part of the question, which is the, the legal ruling on other formulas of salawat outside of a salatul ibrahimiyyah. They are permissible, right? The second question is with regards to the means of transmission. You know, why do you need them uh, if we have a salatul ibrahimiyyah uh, and so on? And, and how do these things reach us? Uh, this is actually a really detailed topic and I'm hesitant to go into it in through all of its dimensions, but basically a person may be inspired in the moment to write that salat. The Prophet said in the hadith recorded by Bukhari and Muslim that before you were people, in the nations before you, there were people who were muhaddathun not muhaddithun, muhaddathun, meaning people who uh, receive discourse via inspiration, even though they are not a prophet. So we know that dreams form a portion of nubuwa, but our dreams that we receive are not wahi in the strict sense of legislative wahi. Inspiration is not wahi in the legislative sense, but a person can be inspired. They could have a dream. They could have a vision seeing the Prophet ﷺ. They could receive a salat from someone else. Uh, there's different ways they can receive these things. And these things are not wahi in the legal sense. Because it's not adding a ruling to the sharia. It's simply a salat which is already supported in the sharia. So sharia remains unchanged. The laws remain the same. It's just a particular wording. So if they're taken from those means and their meanings are sound and understood, then there is no real issue to object to. That doesn't answer the question about the significance of all of the diversity and variety and quantity of salawat that we see written by Sahaba, Al-Bayt, great ulama from the past and awliya and salihun uh, on to today's time. Why do we have such variety? And to answer this question, we have to look into that verse in Surah Al-Ahzab again. In Surah Al-Ahzab, in that verse where Allah Ta'ala commands us to send salawat upon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, He says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا صَلُّوا عَلَيْهِ وَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا there's a lot of linguistic issues here. And it takes a bit to unpack those linguistic issues. But generally speaking, we say that Salimu Taslima is called a maf'ul mutlaq in the Arabic language. In English, they call that a cognate accusative. So in Arabic, if you want to emphasize something, you can use the verbal noun of the verb you just mentioned. So to simplify this, you'd say Daraba Zaydun Amran, right? That's your basic grammar sentence everyone learns, right? Zayd hit Amr. Or you could say Daraba Zaydun Amra Darban. So you add Darban at the end. Notice that it's in the accusative form, it's mansub, and this is called Maf'ul Mutalaq. 
It's the verbal noun of the verb mentioned in the sentence. So if you translate that in English, it Daraba Zaidun Amra Zaid struck Amr. Daraba Zaidun Amran Darban Zaid struck Amr with a striking. It doesn't sound that nice in English, but in Arabic it makes perfect sense. Zaid struck Amr with a striking. What's the point of that? Why do you do that in Arabic? Well, there's different reasons why you could do it. It could be to emphasize something. It could also be to explain the quantity, how many times you hit Amr, right? You could say darbatain or darabatin kathira and so on. It could also explain the quality of the striking. Darban mubarrihan, right? Darban mubarrihan, he struck him violently, right? So the maf'ul mutlaq plays this role in the Arabic language. So going to the verse, Sallu alayhi wa sallimu taslima. Taslima is the maf'ul mutlaq of sallimu. So sallimu, give salams. And taslim is the mustar, it's the maf'ul mutlaq of sallim. Right? Sallimu is the command form. From sallama you sallimu. Tasliman is the mustar. So what this is telling us in the Arabic language is that this general command also has an emphasis with the maf'ul mutlaq. And that emphasis can be one of quantity, meaning send abundant salawat. It can also be one of, of quantity, of quality rather, quantity and quality. So the phrases you use should be varied and rich and beautiful. And this is what Sayyiduna Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu said. He said, when you send salawat upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, make them beautiful. So he himself is indicating that there's a beautification that you make when you are praising the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and making dua, asking Allah to bless him. So this verse establishes that there is going to be a variety of salawat that come as we apply this divine command. So when you look at the salawat from the earliest generations until today, what you find are salawat that teach us as well, describing different aspects of the Prophet ﷺ. Salawat that describe his names and his descriptions. Salawat that describe his character. Salawat that describe the unique gifts that Allah gave him. Salawat that describe his reality. So there's so many salawat that describe these various aspects and they all are a fulfillment of the command Sallu alayhi wa sallimu taslima Right, a person may ask why is tasliman there but not salatan as maf'ul mutlaq and the ulama say that it applies to both because when they're together they imply the same. So it means be diverse in your expressions of salawat upon the Prophet and do it frequently. So there's intensity in quantity and intensity in quality. And that's what we see applied within all of these salawat, like the one we just recited from Imam Shafi'i rahimahullah. It's very rich in meaning. We see that some of them are very short, in, their, in the phrases, but they're deep in meaning. We, some, we see some that are very long, like the Lairul Khayrat of Imam al-Jazuli. We see some that are even longer, like Imam al-Sharqawi's uh, Zakhiratul uh, Muhtaj, which is about 16 or 17 volumes just of salawat. He puts the entire seerah in the form of salawat. Imagine that. So here we are teaching the Battle of Badr in the seerah class. Imagine teaching or reading about Badr in each description is prefaced by a salat. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammadin who was standing in prayer through the night while the Sahaba were receiving gentle rain that washed away their anxiety. Allahumma salli wa sallim ala Sayyidina Muhammadin who did this and this and this during the battle. So the whole seerah is couched within salawat as well as the shama'il, as well as the khasas, the 17 volumes. This is our ummah. This is how we used 
this التفنن في المحبة التفنن this artistic expression of love through the salawat upon the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So this is firm within our tradition. It is valid. It's not a question of what is better. We always recite a salat al-Ibrahim in our salat. And ultimately speaking, that is going to be the supreme salat because it's coming directly from al-lisan al-sharif, the, the blessed tongue of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa But that is not, that does not imply that it's haram to have other salawat. And that should be very clear from this answer, insha'Allah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Yeah, uh, this, this verse is incredibly deep and rich. Um, I once did a class on this verse, a tafsir. It, it spanned about eight hours. And it was just looking at this verse and all the things we can derive from it. Because there's a lot of fundamental questions that the verse uh, brings to us. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, before giving the command, He says, Inna Allah why does Allah Ta'ala mention himself and then say, and his angels? Why does he say his angels? Are there any other angels that don't belong to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala? Of course, they all belong to him. So why does he say his angels? Why does he say yusalluna in the present tense form? Right? Why does he use the word an-nabi with adif and lam? Why does he use nabi and not rasul? Right, and then you have the command, "Sallu alayhi wasallimu," and then you have the response to this. What's the response to the salat? Sorry, to the command. When Allah commands you to send salat, how do you obey the command? You say, "Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad." But Allah is saying, "Sallu." He's addressing you and me, "Sallu." So why? When we fulfill the command, are we saying, Allahumma salli? We're saying, Oh Allah, you send, please send salat. We're not saying, Ana usalli. You're not saying, I send salat. You're saying, Allahumma salli. So that's a question too. So there's lots of things you can explore from this verse. Inshallah, we'll do it. We can do a, a nice few sessions just on the tafsir of this verse. It's incredibly rich. And knowing its meanings is incredibly enriching as well. Alhamdulillah.